Before we have our time in God's Word together, we want to give our parents an opportunity to get all their kids, uh, all their kids, you can tell I have a bunch, all their kids uh, set up with um, with our children's lesson. Our, our children's team does a great job. A, a Zoom room is opening up and uh, the link is down here. I also had emailed out the link earlier this week. Um, and uh, everyone else, grab whatever you need to grab, your Bible, settle in, and we'll see you in a couple minutes. Se desea escuchar el sermón en español, haga clic en el enlace. Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. 1 Corinthians is in the sort of back bit of the Bible, as you can see. If you hit Revelation, you've gone too far. And if you don't have a Bible at all, uh, there's always apps. And, uh, and, and you could also follow along. We'll have the text on the screen. But, you know, uh, when someone, someone sits down with you and starts a conversation off very affirming, like, uh, you know, hey, I really appreciate you. You've been so great. You know there's a hard conversation go coming, don't you? Well, in, in 1 Corinthians, to this point, for the first nine verses, Paul is affirming them, saying, God loves you. I love you. Basically, you're very loved. And now we come to the turning point in the conversation at verse 10. Hear the word of God from 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 17. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Please pray with me. God, that we would hear and respond to your word, that the struggle that your church has, that we have as fallen humans, would be 
met with the medicine of your grace through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a scene in the old movie, The Matrix, which I still feel like just came out, but it's like 22 years old. It's amazing. And, um, you know, Keanu is new to the whole Matrix concept, but he has to go to see the Oracle, if you remember that. I'm sure we've all seen The Matrix, at least on like TNT reruns or something. But he, he goes into the Oracle's apartment. And while he's waiting for the Oracle to come out, there's like this tweaky little kid with my haircut and he's dressed like a Hare Krishna. And this little kid is sitting there with it. He has a bunch of like bent spoons sitting in front of him while he's sitting on the floor. And he picks up another spoon and he just looks at it and the spoon begins to bend, right? And, and then he makes it straighten back out. And then he sees Keanu looking at him like, whoa, you're bending the spoon. And the kid says to him, do not try and bend the spoon. That's impossible. Instead, only try to realize the truth. And Keanu says, what truth? And the kid says, there is no spoon. The, the point of what he's saying is to look past the appearance to the truth, that the truth is not the same as the appearance in the case of the spoon. The, the message of 1 Corinthians, as we talked about last week, is to undivide the church. And that sounds a lot easier to say than to do because the church, especially in the U.S., is, is famously divided. There are factions of all sorts, and, and, and it seems more every day. People are ungracious to one another. People of different factions don't recognize one another as family. In Christ. Do not try to undivide the church. That would be impossible. Instead, realize the truth. You know what the truth is according to the text today? The truth is there are no divisions in the church. <laughs> kind of weird, right? Hang on. I'm going to back it up. I promise. But this is the essence of Paul's first argument as he begins his, his, this, this letter seeking to undivide the church. The first thing he talks about is, is that, to, to, put it, to put it one way, is that he says to treat factions as fiction. Catchy, right? Treat factions as fiction. Look with me at verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. This is, this is an encouragement, a pleading. He says, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's appealing to the authority of Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. The Greek is actually even more emphatic there. It actually says that you would all say the same thing, which is not saying all be, be like, you know, ideological, identical, and you all just say the same thing. Yes, we all agree. That's not what it's saying. That, that, that phrase, say the same thing, is actually the language of a peace treaty. When warring tribes or, or nations would be fighting one another, they, when they would make a peace accord, it's, it's, it's talked about as say the same thing. Okay, so far from papering over division, Paul is saying to bring this unity from division. He says, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree 
and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now that judgment, it's like, um, it could be translated principles. It's like, like conducted rules of conduct, but Paul is talking about his heart for them. What he's calling them to is, is to unity, to not operate in these factions that we're going to talk about in a second here. In verse 11, it says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. Now, we don't really know who Chloe was, except that she would, she could have been, oh, um, a number of things. She could have been a, uh, you know, a prominent leader in the church. She could have been a merchant. That's what several scholars say, is this was a, a woman who ran her own merchant business so that she would have people who would travel between Corinth and Ephesus. You see, the letter is written to Corinth where the problem is happening, but Paul, at this point, is living in Ephesus. And so this, these people from Chloe came and reported to him, you see. Uh, it says, For it was reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Now, quarreling, it, it, that sounds low level. This isn't low level. This is red hot you know, red in the face, we're, we are not getting along. This, this, is, this is Kim and Kanye time, okay? These, these are, these are, th this is the stuff that church breakups are made of, uh, are, are these quarrels. And, and he goes on and we get some insight to what the nature of this division was, this, this, this faction was. Now, Throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians, we're going to see there are many, many fissures, many factions, many causes of division in this church. It's a problem that goes all over the place. But the first one he talks about is this. He says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Uh, the, the Greek, it, you could also translate it, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas. So it kind of sounds factional, right? I belong to this group. And exactly what is happening is, is not super clear, and scholars differ. Um, some say, hey, these were not like, these were not official groups. They didn't have t-shirts that said, I am of Paul, <laughs> or anything like that. Paul is just describing this general picture of division. Could be that. The one I think it is, um, is that there were actual factions <clears throat> that called themselves after their favorite teacher. And, uh, and some reconstructions of this go really far and say, yeah, you know, the Paul faction was the, you know, Paul planted the churches at Corinth. He started everything there at Corinth. So these are the people who are hanging on to the original idea. Then Apollos, who we hear about in the New Testament, in the book of Acts and such, he was, uh, he was from the great city of Alexandria, renowned for its learning. Um, and he, he, was, he was a really highly educated guy. He was incredibly eloquent. Uh, he was a powerful debater. Um, and he would have been schooled in the way that the, you know, sort of the Greek culture that Corinth was part of. He would have spoken the way they like. He would sound more like what they like than Paul. 
And that, that all has merit. And so you could see why people would be like, well, we like Apollos. And then, and then Cephas, which is the Aramaic name for Peter, um, you know, Peter was the viewed as, as, you know, for part of the original apostles, maybe more in line with the, the more Jewish emphasis that you'd find in Jerusalem. And then perhaps the people who say, I follow Christ are the ones who say, you guys are all dumb. You know, we don't have a faction. We follow Christ. You know, um, that's possible too. I, I think so, there is a lot of, uh, there's a lot of reason to believe that these were more than just loose factions, but that they were kind of official groups. Maybe not to the point where we know everything about them, but, but these were the nature of the divisions. Not only, uh, not only do we see what's in the text here, but also a guy named Clement of Rome writing a generation after this, he writes about these factions at Corinth, mentions three of them by name, the, the Paul, Cephas, and Apollos factions. And so uh, whatever it is, it, it's a thing that's causing division. And Paul's point here is, yeah, you've got factions, but you need to treat the factions as fiction. Don't pay attention to these divisions. Instead, be of one mind, right? Now, how are you going to do that? Because when, when, when we witness disagreements and people frothing at the mouth over this stuff, it seems really, it seems really hard to find any commonality. Well, what does Paul tell us? Why should we treat the factions as fiction? It's because the church is one. Treat the factions as fiction because the church is one. Remember what I said, you don't need to undivide the church. Why? Because the church has always been one. It only appears divided. In reality, the church is united. It is a fact. And therefore, any appearance of factions, we should treat as not real. Now, where do we see Paul saying, and for what reason do, do we say, can we say the church is one despite the fact that they're ready to tear each other apart? Well, first of all, the church is one in union with Christ. Second, the church is one in the cross. And third, the church is one in belief. So first of all, the church is one in union with Christ. That is the argument Paul makes next in verse 13. He says, is Christ divided? So he begins with, Christ is one. There can't be multiple bodies of Christ. There's only one Christ. So Christ is one. And then he says, uh, he says were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, Paul, you could hear him. These rhetorical questions. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Was, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Those are called rhetorical questions. Paul is scoffing, treating as absurd and ridiculous the idea that there could be multiple bodies of Christ, that you could divide the body of Christ. You can't. He says, because Christ is one, we are united to Christ. That's, that's what the, the baptism part of, is about. You are baptized in the name of Christ. That is entering into the community of Christ. That's what baptism is the ritual of, is, is entering into the body of Christ. And, and we are also, because the first two are true, Christ is one, and we are united to Christ, then we are also united to each other. 
You could think of the example of, of a bride and a groom getting married. Those two families that they're united with then become family. Let's pretend you have like, and this has probably happened in, in somebody's knowledge, is you have the, the two dads of the, the dad of the bride, dad of the groom, like hate each other. Don't see eye to eye on anything. They don't want to be united, you know? But as soon as that wedding takes place, guess what? Those two dads are now united. Why? Because they're united to the bride and the groom. You see? By virtue of be us individually being united to Christ, we are also united with everyone who's united to Christ. The church is one in Christ. The, the unity of the church is a fact. The factions we need to treat as fictions. It, it, I mean, this, this, this is radical if you think about it. It means that, that even if we are in opposition to someone else, we are still united to them. There are literally wars where soldiers who are killing each other are also family in Christ, tragically, of course. Perhaps even more divisive and rancorous than war are the, the political visions that divisions that exist today. This being one in Christ, this applies to, you know, if you're a, 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 on, on the conservative end of the spectrum, it means that you are one with a radical Swedish, you know, socialist who's in Christ. How could you say that? Well, they are united to Christ. You are united to Christ. Therefore, the church is one in Christ. If you're a progressive, it means that someone from some tribal traditional culture with all kinds of backwards ideas who you disagree with vehemently, you are also one with them. That even if you're in opposition, that we're one in Christ. We need to treat the factions as fiction because we are one in Christ. The church is one in Christ. But not only that, Paul, I, I mean, this is a very powerful, powerful example is that the church is one in the cross. Verse 13, when he says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? No, of course, the, what's implied, and, and it's not too far of a jump, it's not a jump at all, is that Christ was crucified for us. And that's a basis of unity. In what way is the, the cross, the fact that, that Christ died for you and for me, how is that a basis for unity? Well, it, it first of all means that we have the same need. We all have a need caused by our sin condition. And Christ's cross is the antidote. We all have the same need. We all have the same solution. We are unified in our need and the fact that we need that, that the fact that Christ did in fact die for us. Now, someone might point out here that well, but isn't that really one of the one of the places where we're actually divided? You know that there are there are people with different ideas about what the cross of Christ, what Jesus did on the cross. 
You know, did he die for sin to uh, to forgive sin, to wash away sin, to turn away the wrath of God, to be a good example, whatever. There's a lot of theories out there. There are a lot of different teachings out there. And I will not mince words about this. There are very many wrong teachings about there. So how do we say that someone who's wrong about the cross and the teaching of the cross, we're still united by the cross? Well, think of it like this. I once heard a story about, uh, it may or may not be true, it doesn't matter, but I, heard, I like it better this way. There was a story um, that one day C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, who were friends, uh, were, were going for a walk together on just this issue. You know, when someone has unbiblical wrong beliefs about Jesus, like, what, what do you do with that? Are they, are they, do they not, do they not benefit from the cross if they believe the wrong thing about the cross. You see what I'm saying? And they thought of it like this. I said, suppose some woman is going to eat a chicken dinner, chicken, some vegetables. Now she has many mistaken beliefs about human biology. She doesn't really understand much of it and has some weird ideas about how the body works. And she doesn't know anything about proteins and, and nutrients and this and that. Um, you know, so all her beliefs about the chicken dinner and her body are whack, are wrong, are incorrect. They didn't say whack. That's my <laughs> paraphrase. But suppose she eats the chicken dinner, believing all the wrong things about it. Will she live? Yes, she will be nourished by it, won't she? She'll get the benefits and blessings of the chicken dinner, even though she believes the wrong things about it. In the same way, as long as we recognize that we need the cross, and that we receive what Jesus did on the cross. The, the cross is going to be effective. We are united in that. Think of the implications. What, how, how much strife, how many quarrels, how much tension is caused not, not just in the big macro level, but at the micro level, the things that tear churches apart. How much of that is caused by self-righteousness? I'm right and you're wrong. Lots of it, <laughs> lots and lots. I'll save you the suspense. Where is self-righteousness looking at the cross? It's on the cross, isn't it? It's a sin that Jesus had to die for. Very hard to insist on my self-righteousness on how I'm right when I'm acutely aware that I needed that cross, that my sin is so bad, God had to die on the cross. What about pride? I, I, I would argue that behind every single division in the church at Corinth, and this isn't just me, this is many, many scholars, not that I put myself in their company, but that would be prideful. <laughs> that really what is behind all the divisions is pride. Pride drives division. Pride drives people into factionalism. Where is pride at the cross? Can you look at the consequences of your sin, of our God dying on a cross and still be prideful? If we all have the same need, and we all need that. We all, we've all received Christ's death on our behalf. Where, where can pride be? 
you know, another thing I want to be careful here is a lot of division, you know, a, a big difference between the church at Corinth and, and the U.S. church today, and I'm sure in other parts of the world I don't have as much knowledge of them. Um, you, you, you notice the people who are, who the factions are naming themselves after, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, Jesus, right? Were these, were these four guys trying to cause division? Not at all. In fact, you, you'll see throughout, when Paul talks about Apollos, he, he talks about him in glowing terms, right? Talks about, we're on the same team. These were people trying to counteract division, and yet it was happening. Yet factions were forming. In our day and age, there are leaders, some of them very persuasive and charismatic, prominent, influential, that are intentionally driving division. That their form of factionalism and tribalism of putting down the other side as a way to build their own following online. It's a way to get themselves a book deal. It's a way to get, you know, when you put out that hot content that gets people riled up, builds your following, gets you the clicks. There's a very vicious and poisonous cycle that is attracting uh, not all of it, right? Uh, don't hear me say that everyone who's doing, you know, online ministry or whatever you call it is bad. Many are many are just trying to inspire and share, and and that's fine. But there are many, online and off, who are trying to get you to, to and others to to treat our brothers and sisters in Christ as 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 not brothers and sisters in Christ, to hive us, hive us off into a faction. But Paul, I mean, it's a crusher. Did, did any of those leaders die for you? They didn't die for me. Jesus died for me. How could I locate my allegiance anywhere but in the cross of Christ? We need to treat factions as fiction. Because the church is one in the cross. So the church is one in Christ. The church is one in the cross. And also, the church is one in belief. The church is one in belief, I said. <laughs> I know some of you are sitting there going, what? It's okay. I'll back it up. Look with me at verse 17. I said, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, right? That is, uh, that is shorthand for the message, the message about Jesus. He says, not with words of eloquent wisdom, that, that, that particular phrase of wisdom, we are going to get into that, so interesting. He says, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul hammers home again and again. This message, the message about Jesus, the gospel is what it's all about. The belief, the teaching, the message of the church is a basis of unity. Now, how can I possibly claim that we're united in one belief as the church? Aren't we famously all over the map in terms of doctrine? Don't we, don't we, don't we, uh, you know, aren't, aren't books and books and polemics and all these things written on this? Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you might have a point. I'm not saying there's no disagreement. What I am saying 
is that we seem to exclusively focus on the disagreement. And we miss where the church has a remarkable amount of agreement for a really long time. The Apostles' Creed, which we frequently will use to confess our faith at Grace and Peace, it's ancient. It goes, per perhaps the first bits of it come even from the time when some of the apostles were alive. This is really, really ancient. And it has been accepted as a, a, a statement of orthodox belief for thousands of years. It is right now accepted by the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, the uh, Roman Catholic Church, the Evangelical Church, the, the mainline church, the vast majority, the Pentecostal Church, on and on and on. There's a lot of belief in common in that. We're talking about, we're talking about the resurrection. We're talking about the crucifixion. We're talking about creation, right? And we might disagree on some of the details in there, but the main idea of the Christian faith we are united on. The, the, the heart at the margins, and those are big margins, we, we, there is disagreement. But in the heart of the, of the Christian faith, it's been intact worldwide for 2,000 years. It is fair to say, though, what do we do with the legitimate disagreements, you know? Well, a, a, a little chart that I, I like to pull out that, that a lot of us find helpful is on a, to, to think about these things in different ways, right? To think of essentials, convictions, and preferences. There is the heart of the Christian faith, the stuff that's like covered in the Apostles' Creed. And the essentials, it's if you don't have this, you don't have the Christian faith, okay? It's, it's, it's the Trinity and the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the real heart of the Christian faith. If you, if you haven't got that, you haven't got the Christian faith. And, uh, and uh, gladly, um, you know, I, I really love our, our membership vows that, that come from hundreds of years ago in, in our, our denomination because they don't really go into specifics. It's simply, do you know you need Jesus? Do you receive what Jesus did for you? It, it, it's, it's around the essentials. And that is a basis for unity. Now, the, the second tier things are convictions. And this is where we begin to have a lot of disagreement. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying convictions don't matter. I think they matter greatly. But the th sorts of things you find there, you know, who does what in salvation, views of scripture, views of gender and sexuality, this is very important stuff. And it's easy for us to focus on these areas of disagreement and forget all about the essentials on which we do agree. I want to be clear. There are um, churches that, that teach false teachings concerning many of these convictions, and I do not recommend sitting under that teaching. However, they are still our brothers and sisters in Christ. They are still family. Now, the third tier of things, these, these are, seem to be just as divisive preferences. You know, um, 
things like worship style, things like uh, which Bible translation you use, things like um, uh, which day of the week you meet on, that sort of thing. I've actually had someone say to me, you say that what songs you do, what style of worship you have is a preference. I view it as an essential, right? And this person wanted me to <laughs> to change our worship style to suit their, their view of what was essential. And um, yeah, you could see how, how that, would, that would be pretty divisive, huh? We over-focus on preferences where we disagree and then convictions where we disagree, even though they're important. We forget all about the essentials. Now, somewhat at, at this point, you may be wondering, so... Is it just anyone who slaps the label Christian on themselves? Like they're part of the body of Christ. They can't be divided, right? Like believe whatever you want. You're still part of the body of Christ. Well, not really. It, it, there comes a point where someone loses one of those essentials. They, re, they don't divide the church, but they do reject Christ. And if you reject Christ, then, you, you know, you have not divided the church, you've abandoned the church, you see. In the same way that if someone is like, hey, I'm a Democrat, and uh, oh, really, you're a Democrat? He's, yeah, I'm a Democrat, but you know, I'm really anti-big government, and man, I think we should abolish all taxes, and I'm not really into programs from the government, and I don't believe in social equality, and also, you know, I've voted Republican every election, and I'm also a member of the Constitution Party. It's like, well, in what way are you a Democrat? Well, I say I'm a Democrat. You, you see, you have to say, no, but just slapping the label on yourself does not make you a Democrat in the same way. Slapping the label Christian on yourself does not make you a Christian if you reject the essentials of the faith. Make sense? Okay, all that is to say... Uh, let's not over-focus on the areas of disagreement, even though they're important, even though we need awareness of them. Let's not forget the, the, air, the areas of broad agreement the, uh, on the essentials, that the church is actually one in belief. We need to treat factions as fiction because the church is one. That is the reality when we're talking about undividing the church, what we're really talking about is waking up to the reality of the unity of the church. That the church is one in Christ, one in the cross, and one in belief. I remember listening to a talk that was uh, at this, you know, stadium-sized conference, really big conference. And, and, and the, the whole theme of the conference was this reconciliation between different parts of the church. And, uh, and the speaker did something quite clever. He, he said, uh, hey, um, on the count of three, I want everybody to say their, you know, their, their, their tradition, their denomination. If you're non-denominational, say that, right? Because you're not exempt from this. And, and so on the count of three, one, two, three, in the whole stadium, you just hear this cacophony, this, 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 uh, this muddled, incomprehensible cacophony of whatever, and it kind of tails off and everybody starts laughing. And then he says, okay, now I want you all to say the name of your savior, 
and your God, the one that you look to, uh, you know, for, for salvation, the one you worship, the one who died for you. One, two, three, and the whole place, I mean, just thundered, Jesus, his point had been made, is that we are one in Christ. Please pray with me. Jesus, I pray that we would wake up to the reality of the unity of your church, that we would start living out that reality, that we would not fall into our made-up factions, that we would try and imagine a disunity where there is unity in your body. Instead, we pray that our practice and our understanding would conform to the reality that your church is one. In Jesus' name, amen.